0: to Restoring Memory, a COVID Calls exploration of the first two COVID years. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters, and since March 16th, 2020, I've been the host of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. This is episode number 489, March 16th, 2022, and the headline for this is Fighting for Health with Dr. Gabriel Boslett and let me bring him on. Dr. Gabriel Bosslet, let me introduce him. Uh, He's not a stranger to COVID calls, but let me introduce him anyway. Gabriel Bosslet is associate professor of clinical medicine at the Indiana University School of Medicine and is the program director for the Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine Fellowship. Since the pandemic began, he has cared for COVID patients in the ICU and helped to deploy and educate critical care trainees through the two COVID surges in the state of Indiana, Although I believe we're going to have to update that part of this bio. He also runs a COVID Facebook information page for the state of Indiana known as the Who's Your COVID update that has become a community of over 40,000 followers. Gabriel Bosslett, thanks for joining me on COVID calls.
1: Yeah, Scott, thanks for having me.
0: We talked last May 31st, 2021 on COVID calls. We've kept up since then personally, but um, yeah, it's... Uh, it's been, how many how many pandemics have we had within the pandemic since then? A lot. <laughs> we had Delta and Omicron since yep. then.
1: Yep. And the worst for us was, I mean, Omicron was, well, the end of Delta, beginning of Omicron for us in Indiana was the worst. This past December, January was the worst, I think.
0: Can you talk a little bit about that, that time? Yeah, it
1: was, um, we had a surge in the fall. August, late August, early September, that got pretty scary and that calmed down. And we thought it was behind us. And then in November, it just started going bonkers. And, you know, the hospital I work at normally has an 18 bed intensive care unit. I've seen it at 20 patients before, um, and we were at 40. Six, 46 actually was the worst of it. 46 ICU patients, which is unheard of in that hospital. Um, you know, so you're talking about almost triple the amount of usual maximum patients. Um, you know, in Indiana, we got hit hard late with because, mainly because we were a poorly vaccinated state. I think right now we have like 55% vaccinated, uh, fully vaccinated, um, all, all, all people considered. Um, so yeah, I mean things ramped up quickly. We honestly, you know, luckily I, I say this. I, I I don't mean to minimize Omicron, but Omicron is a different virus than Delta. And had Omicron had we had a had we had the case rise with Delta that we had with Omicron, our hospitals would have been it would have been you know chaos. Uh, you know, people in hallways. Um, but Omicron only—it looked like it only hospitalized about a third of the patients uh, per case um, in Indiana, and so we we ramped up. It was very busy. I worked probably uh, thirty plus straight days um, around the holidays. I missed my wife's family's holiday, um, and so that was rough. But you know, I mean, since then it's just fallen rapidly. I mean we went from full ICUs to now it's, we're normal. I mean, things are, I mean, it's the, IC, the hospitals are totally normal now. It's crazy.
0: What did you notice in terms of, um, you know, as we went into Delta and then Omicron, the way that the team worked together, I'm really interested in what was learned from you know, sort of the first really harsh outbreak in 2020 and then into 2020, 21, particularly after a period of time in which I think many Americans, the vaccine became available, things were better in summer for many people in uh, 2021. I mean, I don't think doctors and nurses ever relax, but there did seem to be a sort of breathing out and looking around, and saying, "Okay, maybe we made it through this," and then it's a totally, uh, you know, right back into things. So I'm really curious about what was learned and 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 kind of muscle memory that came back with Delta and Omicron?
1: Well, I mean, yeah, we had a massive diastole last summer, um, you know, where things were pretty normal. I mean, I can remember going to the grocery store without a mask last summer for a couple weeks, few weeks, maybe. Um, And, um, you know, we did learn things, you know, when, when it started to get bad and we saw that, you know, in the United States kind of looks to Europe because Europe has always sort of been two to three weeks ahead of us. And so we knew things were coming. And so we did a better job. I think this last time from an administ- from a, an institutional administrative standpoint of getting ready. So our hospital hired locum tendons and brought them in. So extra doctors to care for patients. And we'd had a couple extra doctors from before that were already trained up and ready to go. Um, they offered incentives for nurses um, to, 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 to to do more to get more nurses in. So I felt like we were a little bit more prepared you know from the standpoint of the physicians who were working um, I'm the fellowship program director and so there are 21 fellows who are under our uh, you know that who were training and and those are a really vulnerable group of folks because they're they're training, but they're really, for the most part, they can do all of the work. They're sort of just in a tutelage stage um, for three years. And, but, you know, they do it for a pittance. I mean, a resident salary compared to their, you know, what, what most of them owe in loans is, is not a big salary. I mean, it's not tiny, it's probably 50 or 60,000 a year, but that doesn't all, it doesn't vary with their productivity, right? So the more patients you see, they don't get more money. And so I was very cognizant as a program director of not utilizing in the third, in this last wave, not utilizing the fellows for overage coverage um, for the ICUs, because when the faculty would work more, we would get paid more. And this is true. I mean, this wasn't unique Mm to IU. This is kind of the way it works. But fellows and trainees are kind of on a salary that's fixed. And so I was very cognizant of not using them at the beginning, but it got to the point where literally everyone else was used. So I went to our hospital system and was like, look, we need more people. We can, I can ask these folks, but I'm going to ask you to pay them extra for this time because they weren't planning on doing this and they they needed to be paid. And our hospital system, my hospital system luckily, was was like, yes, we'll we'll do we'll happily do that. So I got them some extra money. And, and we made it voluntary too. like, it's not mandatory. You can do it, but you'll, you'll make some extra money. And so for a little while they did, but the quickly that petered out, they didn't even want to do it for the extra money. It's just so exhausting, such exhausting work. So I think we were better prepared. Um, we certainly knew how to care for COVID better. We're much better at, you know, proning patients, putting them on their bellies, doing it quickly. Um. But, and we're also from an emotional standpoint. I think, you, you know, when someone comes in with COVID and you put them on the ventilator, by now you're just sort of used to the fact that, uh, you know, it's sort of just oh, almost a coin flip as to whether or not they're going to live or not. And, I hate to say that you get used to that, but you sort of have to steal yourself for that. You know, early on, we were like, let's try this and let's try this and let's try this. And we're still trying stuff, but, you know, really very little has worked. And so now we're, you know, I think just emotionally more prepared for the fact that, you know, a reasonable percentage of those patients are going to die. And I think that's just a coping mechanism, frankly.
0: I hear some exhaustion in your voice, it would be strange if it wasn't there. And I, and I want to ask you another part of that and it has to do um, with the political context in which those um, patients coming in with Delta and particularly with Omicron, um, the context of understanding that. And I, I want to be careful about this because I know a lot of people end up in um, the ICU with COVID who may have been Vaccinated. I don't know how, I don't know if it's a lot, but there must be some. Um, and, you know, many people have done everything that public health leaders told them to do and have still gotten Omicron and had terrible cases. So I'm talking about that subset of people who um, chose not to be vaccinated, have maybe been outspoken about it. And then, you know, people were ending up in the ICU, a large percentage of them had not been vaccinated. And again, that's the, you know, I mean, that's what's happening in the clinic, but of course, outside the walls of the, of the hospital, in the fall of 2021, COVID politics were, I think, just absolutely brutal in America. Well, how did that contribute to your exhaustion or are you able to wall that off?
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm going to answer that, but before I, I do, I will say that the exhaustion, um, I am still exhausted and I'm surprised by that because I, you know, we've been things now here are pretty normal. I mean, we have very few cases in the state. Um, and, um, it's been, you know, the hospitals for a month have been back to normal operating and I haven't been in the ICU for the last month either. I've been on uh, sort of administrative time. Um, but I, I'm still very exhausted. I'll be honest. Um, I am a little surprised by my, by how exhausted I still am. And I, mean, I, I I think it's just sort of two years of adrenaline has really just taken its toll. Um, and so I, I'm, yeah, I, I, hopefully that comes back, but okay. So the question at hand, so the politics, um, yeah, so, you know, 20, the, you know, if you look back to 2020, early 2021, maybe, um, the pandemic sucked, but, um, And it was a political mess, Um, but but as a ICU physician, you could separate those two. Um, One of the hardest parts of 2021, the surges in 2021 specifically, especially late 2021, so um, August, September, December, January, which were which were bad, um, was that there was this overwhelming and palpable sense that some of what we were doing was senseless. Right. I mean, the people, you know, by and large in an intensive care unit, of let's say 30 patients in intensive care unit, 16 of them would have COVID and one of those would be vaccinated at all. Um, A very small percentage. Um, And so there was just this overwhelming feeling of. um, um, It was absurd. I mean, Hmm. it was an absurd feeling. Um, that, that we didn't have to be this way, you know, I mean, and so the exhaustion of just, of caring for those patients, physically, it's exhausting. It's, it's an exhausting disease to care for. You're, you're moving, you're flipping people over on their bellies, which you don't do that much. Normally you're having to put on a ton of gear to go into the rooms. It's Mm -hmm. physically exhausting it's emotionally exhausting because they die, but it's also emotionally exhausting because especially in 2021, you know, it didn't have to be that way. And the, you know, the politics of it were very frustrating because there were leaders both nationally and on a state level in my state that, um, you know, came out and said they didn't believe the numbers, even as late as 20, late 2021. And, you know, when I hear that kind of stuff, um, it really just makes me sad. Um, you know, what we need in times of crisis in our hospitals are leaders who support us and who, um, Empathize with the fact that people are dying, and that you know we're struggling in the hospitals. And you know we did have leaders that were that way, but we had leaders that weren't too. And politically speaking, that was that was very difficult for me to swallow. To the point where, you know, I kind of joke that I was somewhat political before the pandemic, but the but the pandemic brought politics to my to my shop. Right. I mean, before the pandemic, you know, medicine was, I guess, political, maybe, I guess, but not in the ICU. Um, But that stopped with the pandemic. You know, politics were were in the ICU every day. Um, And that changed me. That Hmm. changed me forever. Um, I am far more political now than I was before the pandemic. Um, If you if you if someone did a sort of qualitative study of my Twitter feed starting in 2014, it would go from you know, mostly medical education stuff and some posts about my dog and my kids to basically uh, tweets with exclamation points about the pandemic for a year or a year and a half. And now it's mostly, um, the disaster that is uh, politics around public health and um, things that protect citizens in the state of Indiana. And what that's because, say, yeah. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that's just because um, they, they came into my house, you know, that they, they, if, you know, mm-hmm. they came into the hospital, they, they, they came, you know, I didn't go seeking politics. Politics came and found me and now I can't get away
0: from it. When you say that politics entered the ICU, you mean that literally in the sense of why the patients were, were there, but and they're not speaking to you when they're in the ICU. They're too sick to. Some of them maybe, are. Really?
1: Some of them are. Yeah. And some of them say political things in the ICU. Um. Yeah. I mean, I I was on this weekend and had a patient who could speak to me who doesn't believe in COVID. Um,
0: Walk me through that conversation. I mean, how does that, how does that work even?
1: I I didn't have the conversation with them. I was told that. Um, And, and, and Scott, and so that's probably hypocritical for me to say, but, but I'll say this, that my exhaustion is such that, you know, six months ago, those were conversations I was happy to engage in. Mm. And at this point, um, I ask about vaccination. I ask if they'd like to talk about it and if they say no, the conversation's done. Whereas before my next question would have been, can you say more about why you don't want to talk about it? I- I'm just mm. not, in- I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted of it. Um, so yeah. I, I, in all honesty, I didn't talk to him about it because I just, it, it, it it, um, it sort of eats away at my soul anymore to have those conversations.
0: I mean, I just want to sit with this for one second. So if a person says to me, if, if a person comes into my classroom and they sit there and I say, okay, here's the syllabus. And they say, no, I'm here for a sandwich. Uh, my reaction to them would be, well, I mean, I'm still going to teach the class. And if you're here, you know, you're welcome to it, but I don't serve sandwiches. I mean, you're here for a different reason. I mean, there's a, there's just a fundamental miscommunication there. And I'd be worried about them, honestly. I mean, beyond this sort of like, why are you here? I mean, and it's, it's, it's an imperfect analogy because I don't save lives, but I mean, what I'm trying to get at is it does feel that there's mental illness there
1: people have a a not, it's not a huge percentage, but a reasonable percentage of the American population have chosen to believe a fiction and a re and, and what's more frustrating is a reasonable percentage of the leaders of the American population have chosen to help them believe that fiction. And, um, Yeah. That, that's, that is where we are. It's not a huge percentage. I, I don't want you to, yeah. to come out thinking that I have conversations every day with people who don't believe in COVID people at this point for the most part do, but they still exist. And and there are a reasonable amount of people who believe that it, it, it exists and still aren't getting vaccinated. I know a lot of those.
0: Right.
1: Um, and yeah, it's a, it's it, people have chosen to believe a fiction. Um, People have chosen to believe multiple fictions. I mean, it's not just COVID. I mean, there are a lot of fictions going around in the United States um, about, you know, a lot of stuff. January sixth, the the election, all of that. That's all wrapped up together. I mean, it's all it's all part of the same narrative, frankly. <laughs>
0: just take a moment to remind everyone that I'm talking to Dr. Gabriel Buslett today. I'm really happy to have him back on COVID calls, particularly as we're moving towards the 500th episode and the launch of the digital archive. And um, let's just stick with the politics for a second because you really did get involved in the sense that you went before the state legislature and, and spoke your mind in December I guess in what must have been almost the apex of the Omicron wave, there was a bill to, if I understood it correctly, ban vaccine mandates in private establishments in the state. So the legislature was going to intervene, interpose itself there between uh, customers or institutions and private institutions. And um, you went to the floor and spoke about it
1: yeah i did it was um december 16th it was um a very hostile it was on the floor of the state house um, of the state uh, of the of the house of representatives in the state of indiana Um, i was one of uh, four physicians who spoke Um, me the president of the indiana state medical association or former president maybe. And then two physicians who spoke against, uh, spoke on behalf of the bill, supporting the bill, um, who are widely seen as um, um, relatively disreputable anti-vaccine physicians. So I was disappointed at the turnout. The rest of the room was very hostile. It was, you know, there were, there were two people or th- maybe four people in masks in the entire room. There were probably 150, 200 people in there. And people were not nice. Um, I went and spoke. Uh, the bill was exactly what you outlined. It was a bill to outlaw businesses from requiring vaccines of their employees. Um, I That bill passed, uh, passed the House and Senate in a very watered down version that basically was a shell of itself, which is kind of what the this entire session in the Indiana State House was, was a lot of sort of um right-wing chest thumping bills. And then they would pass a bill that was kind of just a small bark. So this bill said that businesses must follow federal laws in regards to vaccine mandates, which is a pointless bill. Like they have to follow laws anyways. So so I'm you know I'm happy in that I I do think that, you know, I like to think that part of that my testimony helped to sort of move the legislature to something more reasonable. And this is the way it's supposed to work. So I, you know, I don't want to, you know, I, I'm I'm happy that the Republican supermajority legislature decided to water that bill down. I'm I'm thankful to them for doing that. Um but yeah, I went and spoke on at that bill. I I spoke to legislators multiple times in multiple venues regarding that bill and multiple other bills. And I've um Tweeted a lot about bills in the Indiana session this year, more so than ever, because I've my eyes have sort of been open to the fact that um, especially now in American politics, most of the power is in the state houses and people don't know that, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the Congress and 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 this United States Senate gets a lot of the press. But most of the things that affect the daily lives of of Hoosiers and of other citizens in the United States and other states, um, those things are decided at the statehouse level. And so my interest has become very much so in state level politics in the state of Indiana, a state that has a Republican supermajority because of massive gerrymandering um, Mm. of of the way the maps are drawn. So yeah, I've become, I, in fr- I've become radicalized, frankly, and I, I don't know if that will change. I don't know if I'm going to go back to sort of the quiet political consumer that I was before. I don't think that I have that in me.
0: I have never given testimony before, a legislative body before. Uh, I can, I have no problem talking before a crowd. I love it. There's an energized crowd. I feed on it. I enjoy, you know, communicating about the work that I do. Obviously, I enjoy talking to brilliant experts like yourself. I get a little antsy when I think about getting in front of a legislative body and speaking, answering questions. How did you prepare yourself for that?
1: Yeah. So I I had no idea what it was gonna be like. I hadn't, I had testified or I'd been to testimony. I don't think I would testified, but I'd been to a testimony at a committee hearing years before my sons actually testified. Uh, They had peanut allergies and testified for an epinephrine, stock epinephrine bill. So I knew kind of what it was like. Um, It's funny because I had, um, the whole premise of my appearance there was that I had drafted a letter um, and sent it around just by word of mouth to physicians in the state of Indiana that basically said, here's why we should oppose House Bill 1001. And I, I, I drafted it with some colleagues of mine who had done some kind of, we call it good trouble um, earlier in the pandemic, trying to sort of, uh, you know, get people to understand what was going on. So we drafted this letter, we passed it around, and about 500, and I don't know how many, over 600, I think, physician, Hoosier physician signed it at this point, which is a lot. I mean, for a word of mouth thing. And so the whole premise was I, I I delivered the letter, I sent it to all the senators on the committee that the day before, and the email that I sent to them said, "Hey, I'm going to bring this letter, and I'm going to read it into the record tomorrow and uh you know, uh, I'm happy to chat." Well, I got an email reply from one of the Republican senators, and he said, "Listen, let me give you a piece of advice." He said, "Don't read the letter." He said, "We can all read." He said, "Just come with." and speak from your heart about what you want to say. He said, we, we have the letter. So if you read it, it's going to be boring. And man, he was right. <laughs> um, because, you know, what I did was I wrote down on a little uh, card, um, you know, like, you know, four, you know, four or five different points I wanted to make. And I sat there for probably an hour and a half and listened to testimony. And literally the entire testimony for that hour and a half, this is an eight hour session. The hour and a half before me, or it was probably longer than that. It was probably two, two and a half hours, was all um, anti-vaccine rhetoric. I mean, clearly groups of anti-vaccine people. I think every anti-vaccine activist in the state was there and spoke. And so, you know, there was literally no one that spoke against this bill until the physician in front of me got up to speak. And in fact, one of the lobbyists um, for the state medical association grabbed me and the, there were four physicians there to speak he grabbed the four of us and pulled us out and said hey listen it's getting kind of heated back here in the back there was a fight in the hallway and people are asking for your names and i just i want to let you be aware, aware of this so that if you know it's just it's getting a little heated and if you want to go i i will understand well two of them bolted and i was like no man i'm definitely speaking like i'm i'm in it to win right. it here um and so I got up there, and if you watch the testimony, um, I was damn nervous. I mean, look, Scott, I give a lot of talks. Uh, you know, I'm an educator. I, I'm, you know, I'm. I, I give talks in front of groups of physicians all the time. I can handle a room relatively well, but this was one I hadn't experienced before. This was an openly hostile room,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I just kind of took a deep breath and just started going. And um, in, I've watched it, I've watched it a couple times. And um, I spoke, you know, that advice that that Republican senator gave me to speak from the heart was perfect, because that's what I did. And um, I think it came across. And so you know, I learned a lot in sort of, you know, I I speak, I'm good at speaking off the cuff. I'd rather speak off the cuff than from prepared remarks. And, um, I'm glad he gave me that advice because I I think I would have read this letter and it would have been a boring, nothing burger. And it wound up being, I think, better.
0: Well, I, I mean, it really, um, if I hadn't known you before that, I would have been reaching out to you immediately, in, in part because it, um, the moment, it was a defining moment in Omicron. And actually, you got pulled into, uh, you kind of leveled up from a, from a media perspective from a person who has a large uh, community that you've worked with to provide information um, on Facebook, and then your Twitter presence. Um, in which you do. I mean, it's great. You're a great follow because, you know, you do talk about running and you talk about your dogs and your family, and then you, then you come in and kick ass a little bit with some ideas about what's going on with the pandemic. Um, but then you got invited to go on Rachel Maddow. And I mean, that's a totally different, that's a megaphone.
1: Yeah, and that was, yeah.
0: Talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, that was neat. Um, I mean, look, um, I never, you know, I, I never wanted that megaphone. That's for darn sure. And I, I never. Um, that was a. It, that was. Uh, that was a cool experience. Let's just say that when I got the call from the producer to do that, um, I thought it was a joke to begin with. Um, and then when I went on, um, it was. A, I had a good conversation with Rachel. It was a really neat experience, and she. I was surprised because number one, she gave me more time than I expected. And number two, she played a good portion of my speech on the test on the house floor. Actually, she probably played, I don't know. I don't know how much it was a minute, two minutes. I don't know. But it was like, I remember being like, wow, she's playing a lot of this uh, piece. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, and I, you know, I I sort of channeled the advice that that, that Senator gave me again. I mean, that, that was very formative for me. I won't forget that. Um, And, you know, and I just sort of spoke from the heart. I had no idea what she was going to ask me. They don't give you the questions ahead of time. You just kind of wing it. And so, yeah, that was super cool. That actually, interestingly, so I was really excited about that. Um, I I got home and I got the phone call around 4.30 or 5. And I have kids. I have teenage kids and my wife. And um, that that same day, (laughs) this is kind of embarrassing, but that same day – Ariana Grande had uh, t- uh, shared one of my tweets in one of her Instagram stories, which, and so my my phone lit up at like right around the time I got the phone call from Rachel Maddow. My kids started like calling and texting me, "Oh my god, Dad!" And I didn't know, like, I didn't know. <laughs> I had no idea what uh, I didn't honestly, and I'm it's kind of a little embarrassed, but I had to like Google who Ariana Grande was. Um, that's just not my style of music. And, um, but my kids thought that the Ariana Grande thing was far cooler than the Rachel Maddow (laughs) thing. Uh, but I was geeking out about the Rachel Maddow thing. So yeah, that was a really cool experience.
0: Um, well, thank you for sharing that. And of course I love stories where you, where you break through to become cool to your kids. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I it wouldn't matter how many books I wrote. Actually, my kids are great and they're very supportive. But yeah, a breakthrough moment like that where you're actually cool in their eyes, notch yeah. that one, dude. Because most of us never get that way It's over.
1: It's way over. But
0: <laughs> it's fine. Um, and and I raised the Rachel Maddow thing. It's not so much. I mean, I thought the segment was excellent, uh, and I thought you know it, it felt like you were had prepared a lot. But it, I think it's also that you're you're quite used. You're a good communicator, and you're quite used to talking about your values. Um, and, what, and explaining the context of this thing. But I, I come back to this idea that that document, the letter and, and the video, um, are important ones in an ongoing series of moments throughout this pandemic globally, but here in the United States um, context, where we've just relied upon people who have moral authority to cut through everything else and sort of be clear for a minute and just remind people exactly what's happening. And, and I guess within that context, I just want to ask you, man, Like, what was your main point to the legislature?
1: My main point to the legislature was putting a bill in writing that de-emphasized the importance of vaccines at a time when, frankly, we should have been debating a bill that mandated vaccines for everyone, not a bill that outlawed mandates for anyone, um, was ludicrous. And it was leadership malpractice, frankly. I mean, that I didn't say those words. I think that would have been insulting and and would have would have my message. But that, but the but the underlying theme, but the underlying feelings behind my going there was that. Was that rather than debating not allowing anyone to mandate vaccines, we ought to be doing the exact opposite. You know, and so what was I asking them to do? And I said this on Rachel Maddow, I was asking them to do nothing. Right, like just ju- just put your hands behind your back and right. and zip your lips and do nothing, and you will do better than this. Um, so yeah, and and you know if if that came through as um, I could, it, it, you, and the, the the funny part is is like you you use the words moral authority when you sort of just frame that question and. To me, that's that's an absurd way to think about it. it no, that's not the, that's not true. That 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 came out wrong. It's absurd that those words are the moral authority because they were so self evident to me. Right. I mean, it, it was. I didn't say anything profound. All I said was what literally every physician in public health person had been screaming for months. It's just I I I I, I guess I had the stage in the moment. Where I don't know why I don't know why it was the way it was. I, I guess it was just the moment. I guess, um, but it didn't seem like anything very profound to me, and it still doesn't.
0: The, the moral authority, in the way that I understand it, comes from the your saving lives with teams of colleagues and having been through the worst pandemic in American history in a century. Um, and so, and I think it's a testament to the weird times, the fractured times in which we live. I mean, look, it's a democracy. So there's always going to be debate and even people who like doctors and nurses and people who save lives, there's only gonna be questions, but this has been a particular time of diminishing expertise and disinformation. And I think that's what I'm trying to get at is that this, this still was a moment where you kind of cut through and I think reiterated that you know, not in a preachy way, but you got up there and said, look, we're the ones who know we're worn out. Please don't make it harder on us. And it's, yeah. as you said, it should be a simple message, but it, it, that moment, it was a galvanizing moment.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, I guess. Yeah. I, you know, being inside my own head, I, yeah, I, I, I suppose so. It just, it, it just comes from a place of such frustration. Like no one's listening you know, I mean, and that was also, you know, remember December 16th was cases were ramping up rapidly. Hospitals were filling rapidly. I mean, I was, we were desperate at that point. Things were, uh, we were in dire straits, you know, had, you know, and again, it was all a timing thing too. Like had that, um, committee hearing been today, I don't know that I would have had the passion and, uh, you know, the real drive to go do that because we, we are in a different moment today here. I'd like to think that I would, but I'm not so sure. I mean, I think a lot of that was frustration from the fact that, you know, that was at the end that came at the end of like a month of, of being in an ICU. And I was, I was exhausted. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, those sorts of moments. Um, I mean, uh, you know, I'm 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 immersed in COVID data on a daily basis with the Hoosier COVID update page. And so I, you know, if anyone asks me questions about COVID and, and you know, you know, I you, we've spoken before, I could talk about it off the I could tell you how many cases were in the state of Indiana today, um, approximately at least. Um and so putting me in front of a group and giving me a and and, and having me be probably a little sleep deprived and emotional, uh, you're gonna get something like what what you saw, I guess. <laughs>
0: I talked to Greg Gonzalez yesterday, public health researcher. Yeah. Um, You know, uh, he's an amazing person and and great inspiring life story. And an activist, started as an activist, who then had to become a scientist to to do his activism well, HIV, AIDS activism. Um, He said something really amazing to me. Um, He said, he used this phrase... um, I'm not going to get exactly right, but it's something about um, coming out of activist retirement that he had sort of got himself into a public health school now, where he's doing you know public health research and working in big teams. And but that I asked him how COVID had changed him, and he used this phrase, "coming out of activist retirement." And I I give I bring that to you because you know you used the word radicalized a minute ago, and so I feel like you know the way you've described your trajectory is to come um you know, from position of kind of mainstream medical practice and teaching. But now the the politics are central. The political context is central to how you communicate, how you position um, yourself. I mean, again, in front of the state legislature, you know, standing there, that's activism. And And I so I guess I want to just ask you, you know about this again. I mean, is there any going back?
1: No, no. I suspect the trajectory of my career um, is probably forever uh, on a, on a different path. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'll still be a doctor for sure. I'm still going to be doctoring, um, but I, I. Whereas before, I never envisioned myself being active politically. Either on the stage or behind, or in the or or backstage, um, I don't see that I can avoid that at this point. I mean, the thing that I realized was that, I mean, politics has its tentacles in everything, at literally everything we do, um, and the people who are elected to lead us um, wield a lot of power over our daily lives. Um, you know. I could give you tons of examples just from the Indiana state house from the session this year, which just ended, um, of bills that are going to affect our daily life in the state of Indiana. And, um, I, had the pandemic not happened. I don't think that I would be in this position. And, and, um, at the same time, I, I, The problem is now for me i can't um i can't put that back right i mean the the box has been opened and the cat the cat i'm going to use a bunch of different terrible metaphors here the cat's out of the bag and i can't put it back in i i can't just ignore that now the sense of injustice is just it reeks and it's in everything and um if i i i I, I'm the type of person who needs to try to make things better. And um, so that in some way, shape or form, I'll be involved in the state of Indiana and in trying to make things better.
0: Your sense of justice and injustice come from religious beliefs, it comes from your training as a physician. It comes from a sort of commitment to an understanding of democracy. Help me understand what your what you're, orientation around justice is rooted in? Uh,
1: I don't know. Um, I mean, I think anything that I would tell you would be, uh, would probably not do it justice. Um, I'm like a pathologically honest person. Um, and you know, I just, I can't lay my head on the pillow at night. Um, if I haven't sort of, you know, been the type of person that would allow me to lay my head on the pillow at night. It just, I just don't work that way. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, I, you know, I was a philosophy un, uh, minor in undergrad. I got a philosophy, uh, masters when I was a fellow. So there's a lot of sort of cognitive work behind that, but it's, that's not where that comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, that comes from something in my childhood, I would imagine. And I don't know what it is. Um, but I have a very strong sense of, um, of, of fairness and justice.
0: Thanks for taking that question. And I didn't prepare yeah. you for it, and, but I, you know, it's, I've been um, with a group of colleagues. We've just founded an organization called disaster researchers for justice because we were unsatisfied with the, the presumed objectivity of disaster research and social science in general, which seeks to treat the world as an object of study, as if the observer is somehow not in that world, and I'm simplifying here. And we're building, of course, on the shoulders of giants of disaster researchers who are hugely socially committed, not in a partisan way, left or right, but that they have a commitment to trying to show the conditions of injustice that create disasters and that spring from disasters, but they're not well represented in media, they're not well represented in testimony before state legislatures as you, we've tried to make ourselves visible. I mean, I'm playing a minor role. There's others who are leading here, but it's been on my mind a lot because this is this not this organization would well, my involvement with it would not have happened without COVID.
1: Well, so then we're in the same boat. I right? think so. I mean, I think that, yeah, that that's very, that's a, that's a very analogous, situation to mine. I would be, I wouldn't be on here if it weren't for COVID. I wouldn't have, you know, I wouldn't, none of this would have happened if I, if I would have been COVID, I would have been a, an anonymous ICU physician somewhere in Indianapolis actually.
0: So we're almost out of time. I know you have a big day tomorrow and, um, and it's probably been a long day for you today. Uh, and I, as always, appreciate your real generosity with time and, and, uh, I guess uh, uh, the last thing I want to ask you actually comes back to kind of where we started. You were talking about the um, the young doctors in the ICU and your moves on their behalf to get them paid fairly. Um, so your teacher, in the middle of all this, you're still teaching. I can only imagine what it's like to be a medical student or a nursing student. I, I, I talked with Cassie Alexander yesterday, a nurse uh, who wrote the book, You're the Nurse, and she was talking about nurses who had only ever known COVID. They came out of school and that's the world they came into simple, similar to what you're describing. Um, Do you think that this, what do you think about that? And do you think that this moment is going to be somehow energizing to this young generation of healthcare workers that they're, they will come through it and be inspired is the wrong word, but somehow, I mean, they're going to see it. They have seen a lot of stuff in the last 24 months. That's only been in history books. So I, I'm trying to gauge how this young generation is coping with this time.
1: I don't know. Um, I don't know that we're going to know until it's behind us. I mean, you know, the, the, anal- the analogous sort of group that I talk about when I talk about this generation of training physicians Is the greatest generation and sort of the you know the GI generation from World War II, you know? Had you asked someone, you know, a general in World War II, you know, how do you think this group of kids is going to come out of this, and uh, what do you think they're going to be like? I don't think they could have said that they were going to be seen as the greatest generation um, and that they were going to do all the things that they did. Um, I think there's a chance, though. I mean, certainly, I can tell you this: the generation of humans that are finishing their pulmonary and critical care fellowship in 2022 and 2023 will be some of the best-trained intensive care unit doctors we've ever had. I mean, they will have had more at-bats with sick patients than any any, any previous classes. Um, Now, whether that makes them prideful and um are are proud and uh sort of with a sense of duty toward the profession or whether it's just burnt them out Mm -hmm. which i think is possible i don't know um and i don't think we'll know for another decade at least um I, i hope it's the former um i suspect it will depend a little bit on um the generals that they had leading them into this battle, you know, the program directors like me and whether or not we did a good job of, you know, um, making the experience one that was fruitful and not harmful. And I don't know if I've done that either and won't for quite a while. I, I, I hope, I hope those that, that we've ushered through this time, um, turn out to be sort of, the proud ones, but I, I have no idea. We'll see.
0: Let me just remind folks, you've been listening to COVID calls and you've been listening to a special episode in the group of episodes called restoring memory as we're leading up to the 500th episode of COVID calls and the launch of our digital archive. I want to remind folks, there are more COVID calls episodes coming. And uh, today marks the two year anniversary and we have episodes all day tomorrow as well. Please join me at 8 a.m. March 17th, 8 a.m. Eastern Time for a discussion of the COVID Historical Archive with Valerie Marlowe, Ellen Noonan, and Adriana Link. It's going to be a great conversation. I'll see you for that. And I want to thank my guest, Gabriel Bosslett, um, for his time. Um, always enjoy speaking with you, learning from you. You're an inspiration. I don't know what else to say. And um, I think this call um, really clarified some issues of, for me that i had been wanting to ask you about. So thanks for taking time.
1: Thanks, Scott. It's, I, I love talking to you too as well.
0: It's just a, an absolute pleasure. Stay healthy, everybody, and we will see you next time on COVID Calls.